So if you've been with us, you know, we're going through the, good Samar- the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, one of the most famous uh, parables Jesus told. And, and I think for me, it's a story that, that informs what our church should aspire to and what I, I believe followers of Jesus should aspire to in this day and age. Let me read the story. It's found in Luke chapter 10. It starts like this. On one occasion, an expert in law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in your law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? The expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, left him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to a place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. Then Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law required, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, just go and do likewise. This is God's word for God's children this morning. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me as kind of a Bible geek and a word geek is to notice and to recognize in the Bible, or excuse me, in in American conversation, in our language, there's a lot of phrases that have crept in that actually have as their origin Bible, biblical allusions. Like, you know, even people who've never read the Bible before know what you mean when you say it was a David and Goliath situation. You know, people know what it means when we talk about a prodigal son. And, you know, in our world, everybody's looking for scapegoats, right? A scapegoat for whatever. But did you know the word scapegoat was actually coined by Tyndale when he was trying to translate the book of Leviticus into English? for the first time about 500 years ago. He had to make up some words, and one of the words he made up was scapegoat. And so now we've all got scapegoats, and doesn't that help sometimes when you need one? But uh, one of those words that's in the same category, I think, or phrases, is the phrase Good Samaritan. Everyone knows what a Good Samaritan is. We name hospitals Good Samaritan Hospital. We name ministries or, or charitable organizations Good Samaritan organizations. We, we have even in America a Good Samaritan law that in most states that protects people who try to intervene when someone's 
when someone's injured, protects them from being sued for just trying to help and things like that. And everybody knows what that means. And, and it, you almost, it almost gives you the impression that these Samaritans were this group of people that everybody thought was great. But one of the things you gotta understand is this was a completely ironic story in its original context because the Jews hated Samaritans. And the Jews considered Samaritans inferior and flawed in almost every way. And so to talk of a good Samaritan was a paradox. It was an oxymoron. It's like talking about jumbo shrimp, you know? It's something that doesn't really naturally occur. Uh, you know, if you, the history was that what happened is originally there were 12 tribes of Israel, but then under David's grandson Rehoboam, there was a revolt by the northern tribes, and they, they split off from Israel. And so Jerusalem and the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Levite, and a few others stayed in the southern kingdom, but, but the bulk of the tribes split off. And that became uh, the northern kingdom, and, and, and they, they went apostate in a variety of different ways. And in 7, 722 B.C., the, uh, the northern kingdom was conquered. And after they were conquered, uh, you know, a lot of people were shipped out. Other people were shipped in. And, and a new nation kind of formed there that, that still had, had some connection to Israel. But they didn't worship at the temple. They didn't follow the Torah the way that, that uh, the, the the other Jews originally did. And so the people who were closest to them, the, the people who were part of Judah, the remainder of Israel really hated these people in every way and, and avoided them, didn't eat with them, didn't even talk with them and tried to even made, would make detours. You know, in a day when everybody got around by walking, they'd make detours sometimes of several hours or several days to avoid walking through Samaritan towns or walking through Samaritan territory. And so in this story, you got to understand, to understand the story in the original context, you got to understand there was a complete ironic twist for Jesus to make the hated Samaritan the hero of the story, to make the hated Samaritan the exemplar of love and the exemplar of someone who was fulfilling the law of God in the context of this story. And uh, one of the things this shows us, one of the things this reminds us of, is the reality that racism among humans is basically as old as humanity itself. And the reason for that is because racism is a reflex of self-justification. Remember what provoked this story of the Good Samaritan? Jesus is having this conversation with an expert in the law, and, and the expert in the law says, well, all we need to do is love God and love our neighbor, and, and then Jesus, and Jesus said, okay, just go do that. And then the, the expert in the law, it says he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted somehow to say that his status was okay in spite of the ways he knew he didn't, didn't love God and love his neighbor. And, you know, what we've learned through the history of humanity is that the most convenient way to justify your existence, you know, it's too hard sometimes to be a person of virtue. It's too hard to be a person of great creativity. It's too hard to be a person who accomplishes something that's really significant. But you know what's really easy? To justify yourself 
by looking down on someone else, to justify yourself by pushing someone else down, by finding someone else to blame for your problems and your issues. The easiest way to make yourself superior is to find someone else and say they're inferior. The easiest way to make yourself feel innocent is to find someone else to blame for all of your problems. And so the Jews did this to the Samaritans. They were their whipping boy, you know, but then fast forward, the Germans did this to Jews. White people have done this to black people. Christians do this to Muslims. Throughout history and all around our world, one of the ways we validate ourselves and justify ourselves is by finding someone else we can blame for our problems or finding someone else we can consider ourselves superior to. And that's a base instinct of the human heart. In our frantic effort as humans to justify ourselves, if we just find someone else to condemn, then we can be, feel validated. If we, as we're trying to elevate ourselves, if we can push someone else down, we can get ahead up. As the easiest way, it's the easiest way for politicians to score points. It's the easiest way to, to whip a crowd into a frenzy. And that's why it's so warned against in Scripture. If you think of the Bible, for those of you who know the Bible, you know that, that Paul wrote three magisterial expositions of the doctrine of justification, right? He wrote the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians, which are the, the three books where he really expounds the Christian doctrine of justification. Now think about those books. A big part of his argument in each of those books, a major part of Romans, a major part of Galatians, a major part of Ephesians, is talking about the equality of humanity and how we're all on the same footing before God. Go back and read Ephesians chapter 2. Read Romans chapter 2. Read Galatians chapter 3. That's one of the that's, that's one of the linchpins of his explanation of what justification by faith alone through grace alone means. It means letting go of our racism, letting go of our tendency to think that we're superior because of how we're born. And, you know, if you understand the history of civilization, if you understand the history of philosophy, one of the things that, that you, you recognize that everybody who studies this recognizes that one of the great contributions of Christianity to Western civilization is the doctrine of the universal dignity of all humans. And that's an absolute fact. You go back and, and people who've studied Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and, and the great philosophical traditions, one thing that they didn't discover one thing that they didn't recognize, one of the things that they didn't, that they didn't teach was that all men are created equal. That doctrine, that belief, that principle comes out of the Christian teaching that all of us are made in the image of God. You know, the very first couple chapters of, of the book of Genesis says that God made the father of us all, Adam, and he made us in his image and he placed the image of God on Adam and Eve and that's what set them apart from the rest of the creation made made humans special in creation and that is a Christ, Judeo-Christian principle and and the only reason that became a mainstream principle is to the extent that Christianity started to have an a impact on 
the way people thought about the world, on, on how people viewed the world. Uh, you know, what, what the ancient philosopher said is the variety of humanity shows us it can be divided into different grades or different levels of, of, of virtue, of strength, of, of importance. But what Christianity says is all people are created equal. And that comes from that Christian doctrine. And, and, uh, and I, I believe that civilization is not likely to continue to hold on to that doctrine if we lose touch with the idea that we're all made in God's image and we're all bearers of God's image. So this is, this is tremendously important, but it's of the heart of the Christian faith. And, uh, and one of the things this leads to is it leads to compassion. It says, remember the story? The priest and the Levite, so these are two very religious people, and they're coming down from Jerusalem. So they've been at the temple. They've been doing, you know, they've been at a, a, a worship conference. They've been raising their hands and singing and praying and, and doing all the things that you do, you know, and they're on the spiritual high, and they're coming off the mountaintop. They have to get back to their family. They've got to get back to work. And, but, but they're on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, going down from Jerusalem, down from the mountaintop, and they're like, ooh, there's a, a dead guy there. I better just keep moving. Oh, there's, there's a guy who's been beaten up. I don't want to stop and let, let him mess up my schedule here, so I'm just going to keep moving. Th those guys who are, who are supposed to be so close to God, who've just had this mountaintop experience in Jerusalem, they ignore the person in need. And then the Samaritan comes, and you expect the Samaritan to be the villain. It's like I say. The, the experts in the law had a very bad, bad, bad view of Samaritans, and yet he sees that person. He sees not a Jew or a Greek or a Samaritan. He sees a person, and he has compassion on him. See, what, what characterized the, the Samaritan was compassion towards his fellow man. Uh, and compassion, what does that mean? I, I, my definition of it is simply this, that we're so connected to someone that their pain becomes our pain, that their sadness becomes our, our sadness, that their sorrow becomes our sorrow. And that's what it means to have compassion. And those of you who are parents, if you've ever, ever had a child, you, you experience this most acutely. You know, when that child's hurting, you're hurting. When that child's not well, you're not well. Someone said the problem with having a child is you can never be any happier than your child is for the rest of your life. So, but, but the problem is, or what most of us do, is we're pretty guarded with our compassion. We're pretty protective of our compassion because, because you, you know, you just can't, can't go feeling bad for everybody everywhere and let everybody else's bad day ruin your day because because then how would you get through your day? You can't walk down a sidewalk in a city and not see people who are hurting. But when you look at the life of Jesus, one of the things that's striking about Jesus is everywhere he went, he saw hurting people, and he always, you know, what the Bible says over and over again, the, most, the way he's described, Jesus' emotions are described most often is 
he was moved with compassion for them. A leper comes up to Jesus and says, Lord Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus responds reflexively and says, I am willing, be clean. He reaches out his hand and he touches the man and he is, he is cleansed. Another time in John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching the people all day and then the, the end of the day has come and, Jesus, and his disciples say, let's just send these people home. We got to go, go get dinner. And, and Jesus says, I have compassion on these people because they've been with me all day and haven't had anything to eat. He was even moved with compassion just because people had, had gone all day without having a meal. And... And in another place, he just sees the multitudes and he says they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he just sees how they're being abused by their spiritual leaders. And he says to his, it, it says that he's, he's moved with compassion for, towards all the masses. And he says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest raise up laborers into his harvest place. So Jesus is filled with compassion. And even when he's being rejected, he's filled with compassion. As he's going to Jerusalem, knowing that, that the people are going to turn on him, he stops at a, a vantage point. He sees the city of Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks to herself, but you were not willing. And then Jesus, a few days later, he's being hung on the cross you know, the story goes, he's being hung on the cross and they're jeering him and they're cheering on the guys who are hanging him there. And he looks down at the people who are, who are cheering on his death, the people who are perpetrating his execution. What does he say? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus, in every instance, when he saw people who were hurting, even when people were just being self-destructive, he's moved with compassion towards them. He didn't avoid the problems of people, but he let those problems train wreck him, and that moved him to help the people. And the difference between the Good Samaritan and the, and the priest and the Levite is the priest and the Levite didn't have any time for compassion. They were just worried about getting home on time. The, the Samaritan saw someone who was hurting and had compassion on them. I think one of the most brutal places we can be in life, when you find yourself in a place in life when you're hurting deeply, hurting physically, hurting personally for whatever reason, feeling devastated, and in the midst of that devastation you realize nobody really understands what you're going through. Nobody really cares about what you're going through. That makes whatever you're going through feel that much worse. So I was talking, talking to Lester this week, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about a topic I'm not really qualified to talk about. I'm talking about racism in America. I said, what, what do you think I should talk about? And Lester said to me, well, tell people it's all about having compassion on your fellow man. You know, one of the problems with racism, one of the reasons we revert to racism, I think, is, is to narrow the spectrum of people we have to feel compassion for, to narrow the, the, the range of people we got to actually care about. But if we start recognizing that all people are created equal because all of us are made in God's image, then we have to be moved with compassion to the people who are around us. And so I think what, what the challenge 
of the Good Samaritan, the story is we got to start seeing people the way Jesus saw people and then allow ourselves to be moved with compassion the way Jesus was moved with compassion, the way in this story the Good Samaritan was moved with compassion. Third challenge I want to see show you here is that we find virtue in the strangest places. You know, what's interesting about this story, Jesus could have told this story differently. He could have said, you know, a priest was going down and, and walked by, and then a Levite was going down and walked by and ignored the guy. But then an expert in law came by, someone like you, and he saw this hurting guy, and he reached down and helped him, and he discovered he was a Samaritan, and he helped him anyway. And that would have been that would have been a convenient way to tell the story in a sense, right? Because that would have, would have communicated that, well, well, you know, you have this inside of yourself. But instead, Jesus switches things around. He puts the expert in the law as the victim who's lying by the side of the road, dying. And instead, he puts the Samaritan on the horse and makes the Samaritan the person who was helping him. So on the one hand, Jesus' backhanded slam at the, at the priest is also a call, a challenge to the expert in the law to open your eyes and see that there's virtue and that there's, there's goodness in humanity in places that you might not expect it. And here's the danger, I think, for all of us, the danger I know for all of us, is that we, what we tend to do is baptize our culture and baptize our customs and say that the way I was raised is the right way, the way I've been taught things to do things is the right way, and, and the way we've always done it is the way it ought to be done. You know, it's my way or the highway. And one of the benefits, I think, one of the advantages of crossing cultures, visiting other countries, getting to know people from different backgrounds and, and, really, and making friends with people from different backgrounds, is that as we do that, one of the things we discover is that these are people who do things completely different than us, and yet, in some ways, maybe it's better than the way we do it. These are people who, do, who, who wouldn't, wouldn't raise their children the way we raised our children, but maybe there's some insight, some things that we can learn from that. Uh, and so, Jesus' twist in this is to make the, the, the Samaritan the model of virtue when all of Jesus' contemporaries would have seen the, the Samaritan as the other who, who, was, who was flawed. But think about it this way. What, what Jesus wants the guy to think about is, what if you were the one who was walking from Jerusalem to, down to Jericho and you had a bunch of thieves jump on you and you were left by the side of the road and you were you were bleeding and a priest came by who you knew was ceremonially clean but then he ignored you and then a, a Levite comes by who you knew had just been worshiping at the temple and he ignored you and then a hated Samaritan came by and he actually paid attention to you which one of those people would be most important to you in that circumstance right you wouldn't care how ceremonially clean or how doctrinally cor correct the priest and the Levite was. You'd care about the person who actually had compassion on you. And, uh, and that's the challenge for all of us, I think, is to see 
learn to see the good and the virtue in others and, and be willing even to critique the way you see things, to be open to the things in the culture you were raised in, the way that you, that you uh, came up, that you recognize are actually deeply flawed and deeply dysfunctional that you've got to grow out of if you're going to become the person that God wants you to be. And, you know, that's really the challenge of culture. You know, everybody, Jersey City celebrates the fact that according to some metrics, this is actually the most diverse city in America. Did you guys know that? If you look it up, there, there's these surveys done and, and, uh, and we're, we're the most diverse city in America. And that's great because, you know, you can get Indian food and you can get Mediterranean food and you can get, you can get uh, Chinese food, Mexican food, and, and it's, it's all... There's all these opportunities to experience different cultures, different kinds of music, different kinds of dance, different kinds of art, and all these, and make friends from all over the world and things like that. But one of the things I've learned over the years is that culture, actually, it's not about food and music and dance and art. You know what culture really is? It's the way you view time. It's the way you view personal space. It's the way you interact with other people, you know? I mean, in some cultures, if you're meeting a German person, for example, and you say you're gonna meet at 12, and you show up at 12.05, it's like they're gone already, because they assume you, you, you canceled the meeting. But then in other cultures, you say you're gonna meet at 12, and you show up at uh, 12.45, and you don't even say anything about it, you know? It's just just uh, roll with it, because that's just the, the way it is. But but you know, these cultural differences make a big difference and can cause all kinds of drama in, in the way people relate. You know, in some cultures, greeting everybody, even someone you're meeting for the first time with a warm hug is just the way you say hello. And then in other cultures, that feels like a gross invasion of someone's uh, personal space. You know, someone explained to me the difference between uh, New Yorkers and people from, say, Alabama this way, that uh, in, in New York we say buzz off, but we mean hello, and in Alabama they say hello, but they mean buzz off. So if you travel there, just be aware of that. <laughs> so, but the challenge Jesus says is, you know, you experts in the law don't have this all figured out. You need to learn something from other cultures. And that's, that's an opportunity for us in a multicultural city. That's the opportunity and the challenge in a multicultural church is to learn from one another and to be, but part, you can't learn from one another unless you're open to recognizing the areas where you've got a lot to learn, right? That's, you don't learn until you recognize you've got something to learn. Uh, one of the wet places I learned something uh, is for almost a decade, I went every year with, with the kids from my previous church on a mission trip to some of the poorest of the poor in the Dominican Republic and in, in the country of Haiti. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing to see the way people are living sometimes in these villages where their houses are liter literally made out of scraps and they've got dirt floors. And, and uh, you know, their, their daily life is rougher than any camping trip that I've ever been on. And at first you're just shocked that people are living that way in, in, in the world today. And then as you get to know them, one of the things that strikes you, as you get, when you get past some of those things, is 
how much fun they're having and how much joy they have and, and how even as they're living in abject poverty, you know, on two or three or four dollars a day sometimes, they're actually living lives of joy. And, and, and the reason is because they're so poor, they develop a strong network of friends and they depend on one another. I mean, how do you secure your belongings if you don't have a house with a lock on the door? You just trust that your neighbors are watching your stuff. And how do you, how do you arrange for childcare if, if uh, you're only making a couple dollars a day? Well, one of your neighbors is going to be watching your kid and, and, uh, and you know, how, how do you manage food when you don't have a refrigerator? Well, when you have an abundance, you share it with your neighbors and when they have an abundance, they share with you. But all of these uh, interdependences, you know what that does? It develops relationship. It develops a human connection. It develops, it develops a bond between people. And one of the challenges, one of the things we recognize on these, on these uh, trips, and, and something that, that a lot of students of culture have recognized is, is that as we become more affluent, we become more independent. We, you know, we just build stronger locks. We hire people to, to take care of all of our issues. We don't need to ask anybody for help any, anywhere, and we're too busy to offer help to other people. And you know, when you're not asking people for help, when you're not offering help to people, when you don't need people to do anything, you find yourself all alone. And as you find yourself all alone, what happens? Then depression and anxiety and all of these other things become the maladies of, of our lifestyle. It's a, it's, a, it's a predictable consequence of living a life of isolation and of self-sufficiency and of not developing any human bonds, any human relationships. So, so it, you know, it's, it's, but it took for me going to one of these, going to these places where people, you know, literally don't have clean water to drink, don't have indoor plumbing and things like that, and seeing how they do life to, took, me, took me doing that to, to see, see some of the things that we're missing out on, you know, because isolation can create a relational poverty that's more destructive some, in some ways than real poverty. But that's uh, possible in all cultures. I, I have a, a colleague named Leonce Crump who's got a pastor in Atlanta, and he talks about, he puts it this way, so he says that you know, God is building a transcultural kingdom because he says you know, God's kingdom, God's truth, and God's beauty are too complicated to be encompassed by just one culture. So each of us gets one facet of God's truth, God's beauty, and God's, God's love. And, and the fullness of God's beauty and God's love is only going to be experienced when all of these cultures are together in unity and diversity in the same way. And that's kind of what Revelation chapter 7 says. John has a vision of, of the final assembly of, of, the, of the church triumphant. And he says, after I looked, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
And that's a picture that John has of heaven. It's not that all of our differences have been abrogated and everyone's speaking the same language and that everybody's the same people and that everybody's the same nation and everybody's the same tribe now. No, it's that all of those differences are recognizable. All of those differences are still there and yet they're all united because they're standing before the Lamb together. And that's a picture of the transcultural kingdom, every tribe, tongue, and nation, not abrogated or eliminated, but in harmony before God. So that's, that's the vision, but it's also, it's also one of the most difficult things to pull off in real life. I think, like I said, it's, it's very relevant in Jersey City. One of the most interest diverse cities in the nation uh you know historically the way cities worked up up until a couple decades ago was that even in a diverse city there were neighborhoods and those neighborhoods were defined by who lived in those neighborhoods and and you knew especially if you were a young man that you didn't go into a neighborhood where you didn't look like everybody else in that neighborhood because then bad things would what happened. So there were these ghettos and, and you stayed in your ghetto and that was where there was the uh, grocery stores that you felt comfortable with. That was where the church was that you could go to. That was where the restaurants were that you fit in and that's where all your people were and you wouldn't move to another ghetto. But cities have changed in the last couple decades and now everybody can live anywhere they want to. You know, part of, part of that is because Frankly, cities are a little safer now, and so, so people feel comfortable doing that. Part of that is because cities are so expensive now that you just got to find a place where you can find a place and just live there and deal with it. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, that's what makes it, makes it interesting. You know, it used to be when cities were ghettoized that every, every ghetto had their own church, you know, the the Polish people had the Polish Catholic Church, the Italian people had the Italian Catholic Church, the Irish people had the Irish Catholic Church, and everybody knew this is the church where we go to. And uh, the most segregated hour of every week was Sunday morning. But, and, and that's the way, you know, up until a couple decades ago, that, that's what we accepted. That's the way we thought, thought things were. But now I think people are starting to recognize that's not the way things were supposed to be. If you read the New Testament, one of the things you see is that the early church was wildly diverse. All of the congregations in the early church were wildly diverse. And the other thing you see is that caused all kinds of problems. Most of the issues in the early church came from the fact that they were widely diverse. And so like particularly the book of 1 Corinthians, they have all these problems because Corinthians was this big diverse cosmopolitan city that had a big, diverse, cosmopolitan church with rich people and poor people and slaves and slave owners and Jews and non-Jews all together in one congregation. And, and they were having all kinds of issues as a result. And so Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians for the purpose of telling them how to straighten out a lot of these issues that they're having. But, you know, it's interesting, it's pointed out that in, in 1 Corinthians and Galatians and other places, the one solution he never mentions, he never says, well, you know, I think what you need to do is start a church in the rich neighborhood for the rich people and start a church in the poor neighborhood for the poor people and start a church in the Jewish neighborhood for the Jewish people and start a church in the Gentile neighborhood for the Gentile people. He never mentions that as a solution. In fact, what he says instead is, 
You've got to act in line with the truth of the gospel. If the gospel is true, you're going to work these things out. You're going to respect each other. You're going to care for each other. You're going to consider each other. And you're going to resolve these issues by elevating Jesus. Because that was what, what Paul the Apostle said to the diverse churches of his day and age. And somehow we stepped away from that. But, but he says... Yeah, this is hard. Yeah, this is difficult because you guys see things differently because you're coming from different backgrounds. But you've got to work this out. You've got no choice. In Galatians chapter 3, remember one of the great expositions of justification. This is how Paul wraps it up. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you are baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. So your style doesn't matter. You've clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then all of you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we're all children of God. And that means we're all brothers and sisters. And that's kind of the challenge because I don't know if you had a brother or sister. Probably the person you fought with most of your whole life has been your brother or sister. And that's the way it is. But at the same time, you've got to get over it. You've got to get through that. You've got to get past it. And I think the time has come for the church in America. A lot of people recognize that the time has come for the church in America to elevate the gospel and to elevate the fact that our identity is found in Christ and make that a bridge so that we can connect across all cultures a common chain to Jesus himself. The Good Samaritan is a model for us because he's the kind of guy you'd actually want to walk by if you had gotten beaten up and left on the side of the road. But he's more than that. He's a model of what God has done for us. Because see, what the Bible says is that Jesus himself looked down at humanity in its broken and flawed and, and self-destructive ways. And rather than ignoring, rather than abandoning, it says, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, and he took the very nature of a servant and was made in human likeness. Imagine the condescension of Jesus being very nature God to be made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, the ultimate hope that the Bible gives us ultimately is not that we're going to be good Samaritans because, you know, there's too much suffering. There's too much brokenness. There's too much loss all around us. The ultimate hope is that the ultimate good Samaritan has come, not with contempt or with pride or with judgment, but he came to you. He saw you. He had pity on you. He even gave his life for you. To be a Christian in essence is this, to recognize that when you were broken, when you were lost, when you could do nothing to help yourself, Jesus came down to help you and served you and gave his life for you. Conversion is simply to accept the help of the ultimate good Samaritan. But then 
When you do, this is what should happen. It should become possible for you to show that kind of compassion to others. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would make this real to us. Make the love of Jesus for us real to us. And then we pray that as you do that, you would help us to show that kind of love to the hurting and the helpless and the broken who we tend to step over every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.